Hi guys, this is Métis and Me, a podcast for Métis youth in Ontario, where I dive a little deeper into what it means to be Métis in Ontario and the different intersections of Métis identity. I'm Hannah Bazinet, your host. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to welcome this guest to the podcast. Um, she's been an amazing ally for youth in Ontario and is one of the first people that I met uh, in the MNO um, on my kind of journey. Um, yeah, so Tara is a registered psychotherapist and citizen of the Metis Nation of Ontario, as well as Region 8's representative for the Metis Nation of Ontario Women's Council. Tara is completing her PhD in clinical and counseling psychology at the University of Toronto and is the founder and director of the Weaving Wellness Centre, a private clinical and consulting practice that is specialized in serving Indigenous peoples and communities and those who have experienced trauma. Her work has focused extensively on supporting women, trauma survivors, 2S LGBTQ+, and Indigenous peoples on their healing journeys. Tara has consistently helped the MNOYC build a safe and collaborative space where our youth be- can work together to achieve greater well-being. So welcome, Tara. I was hoping that you could kind of just give a little bit of a brief intro to what you do, um, kind of in addition to the stuff that was on your bio. Oh gosh, okay, sure. So, so hi, my name is Tara. Um, I am Métis on my dad's side, so my ancestry comes from Salara, Manitoba, and Capel, Saskatchewan, and um, I also have European heritage, and I am a mum, so I have two little ones, Bo, who just turned four yesterday, and Aurora, who is 20 months old, um, so they keep me pretty busy and on my toes, and I have a partner whose name is Nick, and we have a dog, Roxy, and we're just living our living our little lives here um, in Toronto, trying to be as well as possible in this in this kind of altered reality we're all in right now. So yeah, and then I I guess I um, am very sincerely hoping to finish my PhD this year and that's been a very long journey and I am also a registered psychotherapist I have my own practice called the Weaving Wellness Centre and I sit as the Region 8 Women's Rep for the Métis Nation Ontario Women's Council so those are all the things yeah (laughs) and you had your um, daughter during COVID or was it just before the lockdown it was just before COVID kind of hit us. So she was around, she was between six and seven months when kind of that, like the, that mid March sort of strike hit us. Yeah. So that was, that was a whole other journey. Yeah. Um, I bet. Yeah. It was challenging to say the least. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we will uh, jump in with the first question then. Sure. Um, so what has your personal journey with your Métis identity looked like throughout your youth? <clears throat> so throughout my youth, well, it's I guess it depends on how you define youth. But um, so I didn't grow up knowing that I was Métis. So I was always told the story always was that I was French Canadian on my dad's mm-hmm. side, which is, you know, I... I 
have come to learn that, you know, that's a very common narrative yeah. that many Métis <laughs> people are, have and, and have carried and have been told. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, you know, when I was, I have a very distinct memories of my dad making very odd comments <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was younger, right? So um, that that sort of led me to believe that something is different, that that, that, that story of being French Canadian didn't necessarily fit. Yeah. So he would make comments, you know, I used to really love like making bracelets um like threading like using your hands basically finger weaving Mm -hmm. um but no of course nobody knew that or called that what I was Mm -hmm. doing but I remember my dad very distinctly one day saying to me I can have the memory as clear as yesterday being in the kitchen I don't know I was probably in my my like late or early teens or maybe probably even younger than that I was probably still in like elementary school Okay. And he said to me, you know, you can do that because of your blood. And I was like, okay, yeah. wh- whatever that means. And so yeah. there were moments like that, right, yeah. where my dad would kind of make these kind of comments or these sort of disclosures, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I was young, but and had really no idea what that was or what that meant. And, you know, so that would happen every now and then. And then fast forward kind of to my undergraduate degree, I was at York University doing my degree in psychology. And um, I sort of was always very drawn, of course, you know, to indigenous culture. And my mom, actually, who's not indigenous, um, really enjoyed exposing my sister and I to different, um, you know, uh, cultural celebrations and events okay. and community and things like that. So I remember going to a powwow, for example, when I was really little with my mom and really sort of being struck um, by kind of, you know, indigenous people and yeah. dance and drum and all these things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was very young. And so when we, you know, when I approached, um, undergrad and I took my first indigenous studies course, um, I don't even think it was called that back then, but, um, you know, that was really sort of the spark where I discovered a lot about myself because I remember again, like the first time I smudged, for example, was in that class. And there were a lot of firsts that happened there for me. And one of the assignments was for us to sort of embark on this um, assignment where we kind of mapped out our heritage. And so I started asking a lot of questions and and sort of doing some research and Mm -hmm. stumbled across this document that was essentially this very comprehensive family tree that had been done by a distant relative of mine but that I can't remember who passed it to me it may have been one of my aunts who gave it to me and started looking at it and realized holy smokes you know there's a lot of there's a lot of culture here. There's a lot yeah. of ancestry here and gave this presentation in this undergrad course and <laughs> a number of this other students and my professor all said to me, you need to really look into this more. Like there are very distinct indigenous names in your family tree. You oh, need wow. to explore this. And so that was a really pivotal moment. And, and I probably was what, like 19, 20, yeah. 21, um, And, you know, that was really kind of the spark of a journey around my identity and talking with people and aunts and uncles and doing research. And, you know, I don't remember at what point I, I learned the word Métis. I'm not sure. It it was definitely connected to my own personal journey. Okay. It may have been after that when I started asking. So my, my dad is one of seven. And so our, my aunts and uncles are dispersed throughout uh, North America. And, and my uncle um, at one point or somebody started using the word Métis around me. 
And I was like, oh, well, what's that? And started really understanding. And, and I think somebody at some point also told me like, oh, we, we have ancestry that, but it's like, you know, distant, where I right. always perhaps assumed it was very distant ancestry. Yeah. Meanwhile, my grandfather, you know, was um, Métis on both his, his parents' side and, and okay. um, or from those communities. So anyways, this is a very long, long response <laughs> to your first question, but, you know, it really started with that. And it, it was really over the course of my over the course and through actually my academic journey and education that I learned a lot more about myself and what it means to be Métis and my ancestry and the culture and, and so on. And it sort of sparked a fire within me that has, has not gone out. Yeah. <laughs> that has only been, been sort of, you know, flamed further as I've learned more and connected with community and culture and all those things. So that's what yeah. that journey, early journey looked like for me. That's amazing. And I, I feel like at least my kind of hypothesis is that a lot of hopefully the listeners that are, you know, hearing this or listening to this episode um, have kind of gone through the same journey. Mm -hmm. Like I know that that resonates a lot with me, like your story, because I went through the same thing mm -hmm. a little bit earlier, but like only by a few years, really. Like I was mm -hmm. grade 12, my first thing, like my first event that I did with the MNO. So right, right. Yeah, it's hard to be like the first generation that's trying to reconnect with the culture and the community because you do have to do a lot of the legwork like for you it was because you know your dad wasn't comfortable talking about it for me it was because it came from like my mom's grandma who was actually adopted outside of her community so we right. lost it right mm -hmm. so yeah I'm I'm hoping that a lot of people have a similar story and that yours will resonate with them wonderful yeah you know and it is I the more work I do in community I, I that is a very common narrative and a common yeah. story and experience and then there's that other school of people who have grown up who yes. have like always known that they're Métis and have known exactly where they come from and who their people are yeah. and you know it's really interesting to reflect because I have two children who I'm trying to raise in that way right, yeah. right? who know what it means to be Métis and who their people are and where we come from so there has been much kind of intergenerational healing both sort of towards the younger generation and, and you know I can talk a little bit more about what's happened but towards my dad's and all of his siblings generation and all of my cousins there's been a lot of kind of lateral processes that have happened yeah. for all of us so yeah, yeah that's great mm -hmm. well, that kind of leads into the next question so like what personal hurdles did you have to overcome to be fully present in Métis spaces once you kind of got comfortable with that label I guess yeah, you know, that's a really great question because there were there was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> so, so, you know, f the my journey sort of continues the 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 rest of that story from undergrad is that I kind of moved towards the final year of my um undergraduate degree and I get involved in a research project at York with a professor her name is Dr. Cynthia Chataway. And she, um, she was non-Indigenous, but was doing a, a research study that looked at, it was called Understanding the Strengths of Indigenous Communities. Mm -hmm. And I was a research assistant on it. And so I got a lot of exposure to, you know, connecting with Indigenous folks. And yeah. we traveled to many communities and it was really wonderful. And from that, I then sort of applied to a master's degree. Um, and I had two really keen kind of areas of interest. One was sort of Indigenous work and then the other was women and 
what's now called women and gender studies. We didn't call it gender studies back okay. then. It was just women's studies. Yeah. And, and so I had applied to a master's degree kind of with these two ballparks in mind, not knowing what exactly was going to happen. Yeah. And long story short, I, I ended up in a master's program um, at YZ at the University of Toronto with Dr. Suzanne Stewart. And, you know, that, that journey around, um, I wasn't identifying even as Indigenous, at the, even though I knew okay. I had ancestry, I was not identifying as right. such. Yeah. And that was really a personal, like, like, uh, I don't know if barrier is the right word. It was just part of the journey, right? Yeah. Around having this information being given this, you know, history or, or the beginnings of, of, a his, of history and ancestry, and then trying to figure out now what, like, now yeah. what do I do with all of this stuff? And so, you know, over the course of my master's degree, those two years, that was really, really powerful and informative and a lot of healing work that I did there, right. Around yeah. trying to make sense of, of my place, um, my identity, what it means to be Métis, what is the history of Métis people, what is what is the culture, yeah. who are my ancestors, right. um, how do my, like, how does all of this fit, this context and this history fit within the context of my own family and yeah. my dad's relationship to identity, all of this stuff. And I guess really an important part of my journey is that my grandfather died. So my dad's dad died when I was very, very young. Okay. So a lot of that knowledge, you know, I, I like to believe rested with my grandfather. Mm. And, and so that, and, and, and having said that, you know, there was a lot of, my dad has experienced a lot of trauma in his life and, you know, that disconnection from identity and community, um, was due in part, I believe, to that, right? Yeah. Was that it was a purpose, there was a purposeful severing for him mm -hmm. around that aspect of himself and his identity. And so, you know, so, so here I am, this like, you know, young thing <laughs> trying to figure out all this stuff and starting to ask questions and really whether I don't even think I realized at the time how, you know, triggering all of this probably was for my dad and to some degree probably still is and still remains to be that for him. Yeah. I try to do it very sensitively, but anyways, you know, this, this figuring out for myself and what this means to me and about me. Um, and, you know, feeling like I remember sitting in this cafe writing this very like I, I started a journal which was like I think I called it my Métis journey or my Métis identity journey something <laughs> okay. like that yeah and writing like very clearly writing like I don't know what it means to yeah. sort of have this be a part of me and I don't know what it when it's going to feel comfortable for me to identify as yeah. you know as we use, often use the term aboriginal back then mm. um and as Métis and and being very intentional in that writing saying you know i need to connect with elders i need to yeah. go to circles i need to figure out where my local community is i need to figure out where my kind of ancestral community is yeah. so there was a lot of intentionality around that journey for me before i got to the point of truly self-identifying in a very and also this was the other thing around in a very public way it was 
again, I remember I almost had a panic attack the first time. I think oh I gosh. actually may have had a panic attack yeah. the first time that I identified in public as Métis. Like, my heart was literally yeah. pounding out of my chest. I was sweating. I was, like, red everywhere. Oh, no. And I identified because I was in a room with a bunch of other Indigenous people. Like, mm-hmm. it was in this community network we were in. And I remember just thinking like, oh my God, they're all going to look at me and tell me, like, just be like, liar, get out, (laughs) you are not one of us, right? I just had this moment. And I remember when I said it, I saw one of my peers who I was very close with, who was not Indigenous actually, but she has some other Indigenous ancestry, looked at my supervisor, uh, Suzanne, and they shared this moment of recognition that I had now publicly identified. Oh, wow. Like, it was, like, so noticeable to them, yeah. actually, that I was sort of stepping forward in that way and kind yeah. of coming out of sorts, right, around yeah. my identity. So, anyway, so, you know, that personal work was one barrier. Um, again, not a barrier. I don't like that word barrier as it relates to the self because I think this journey is something that we really – we actually need to, as Indigenous people, I think, be very reflective and intentional because – there are so many people who pick up these terms and identities and they don't take, they don't engage the due diligence to figure out what that means. And, you know, especially because I, I came back wholeheartedly. I had zero, you know, nobody was teaching me or telling me this stuff. I had to sort of start from scratch. And so I had to be very careful and very intentional about what I did. The other challenge, you know, that I really experienced in Toronto was the absence of a community here. And, Mm. um, you know, there was a council, um, but the council, you know, and, and, you know, just to credit the folks that were engaged in the very early days of that council, I think, you know, their journey around even just establishing a council for Métis people in Toronto um, was probably, you know, very arduous and required a lot of labor and, and to establish it and keep it going, was perhaps all that they were capable of doing because this is way before the days of reconciliation and way before the days of, you know, frameworks with Canada and all these other things. Right. Um, So I was searching, I searched a lot to find a place of, of, um, I don't even think I was trying to find a place of belonging. I was just trying to find a place of like learning at that point. And that was very difficult. And, and I would reach out to people and, not within the community with, you know, other people who are connected with like, you know, administrative positions within the right. nation of Ontario and doors. It just felt like doors continued to be shut. There was no clear path. And yeah. I think that was really a huge barrier for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what it was within me that kept me going. Um, but I did. And, and honest to goodness, I spent a lot of time with first nations folks because that's who they, you know, there's, there's often a lot of tension between Métis politically. I don't even think personally, like politically politics get in the way of a lot. And Mm. so, you know, my experience with first nations people and folks, like I'm deeply indebted to those elders and those very kind people in my courses and in the community who recognized, you know, here's somebody who is, searching and who is trying to connect and welcomed me with open arms and so that's who I went to because I couldn't find my own community um 
So that's, that's, that's a little, I know that's a very long winded answer to that piece around barriers, but I would say those are sort of some of the really key early on barriers that I, that I, I faced when I was just starting out. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like, I feel like most of the (laughs) things that you've touched on, um, I experienced in some capacity too, obviously it was a little bit different, but, um, yeah, I think there's common threads in your story, um, to, to a lot of other people's kind of journeys through grasping what the the Métis identity means to them, right? Because it also, mm-hmm. that's, I think, the difficult part that I've experienced is it means something different to, to literally every person I talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like you can't really, even if you are reaching out to community to learn more, sometimes those conversations they might help, but they might also pull you in a direction that maybe doesn't feel comfortable or doesn't feel right or natural for you. So it's just kind of like working through all of these little pieces and a lot of it comes within and and you do have to be intentional about it. You're right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right. So, um, like you kind of touched, the next question was, um, like how did your indigenous identity play a role in your career trajectory? But I, I feel like you kind of covered that. Did you want to add anything else or? I guess just to say, you know, like once I got, once I got going and I really kind of, um, you know, found that footing underneath me, especially throughout my PhD, my, my focus has shifted pretty singularly to, our people mm-hmm. um, and working with Métis people and understanding health and well-being for us as Métis people mm-hmm. and what does therapy look like, culturally specific therapy and advocating for culturally specific therapy and, and okay. you know, and spaces for us to share our stories and narratives around health yeah. and well-being and, um, and history and how that all, inter, you know, informs everything intergenerationally. So right. I think that's, that's sort of become the main that that sort of was the main shift then once I once I got going um I've stuck to it pretty intensely okay um well that kind of leads into the next question because I know um like I met you through the Métis Nation of Ontario um I think it was actually at that Infinite Rage camp um yes yeah (laughs) oh my Um, gosh Hannah we're going back (laughs) (laughs) throwback that was like what like eight years now I think oh wow I don't even know yeah (laughs) um but yeah and then you've kind of continued to be um especially in youth spaces a big pillar for us to kind of open up and talk about different things that we're struggling with I remember the last time we uh were together was actually in Sault Ste. Marie when we talked about you know the struggles of trying to reconnect with our identity and our culture and urban spaces so I guess um what I'm wondering is kind of what else has your work looked like or what how else has your work looked like with the Métis Nation over the last few years or over your career yeah so you know I started what once I started hitting those barriers and around the community and sort of the council and 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 I wasn't really being fulfilled in a way by the council that I needed or that I wanted in terms okay. of like cultural programming and community spaces and ceremony, you know, like we would meet once a month and that was sort of it. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I, I'm a big believer of the idea that if you see something that you are unhappy with or feel like could be done better than is currently being done, then you step up. And yeah. you and you contribute to creating change. And 
So that's what I did. I saw, I joined the council. I initially, I initially started with in, the infinite reach network. So I was okay. part of the first cohort of facility, infinite reach facilitators. Oh, wow. At, really? Yeah. At U of T. So what during my, I think I had just started my PhD when I got involved there or was near the beginning of it. So mm-hmm. I was the first one at U of T and that was huge. Like that was yeah. a really huge and, and not to sort of <clears throat> take on a narcissistic tone here, but <laughs> you know, like we started myself and I, I want to give credit to Christine Skura, who was the facilitator at Ryerson okay. and Ginny Gano, who was also a facilitator out of, um, Oh gosh, one of the massage schools of who, which whose the name is totally escaping my mind here. But okay. um, but the three of us really kind of put our heads down. And we're like, you know what, we because we were all. I mean, Ginny maybe have maybe joined later, but you know, I know Christine was also the youth rep with council. We mm. all really were like, listen, we've got to do a better job here, and we started creating those spaces. And even though it was Infinite Reach, which was geared to young people and post-secondary and so on, Mm -hmm. we had all kinds of community members across the age spectrum show up to our events because there was really nothing else happening in the city. And so we had people, you know, who like executive directors of organizations who were Métis showing up to an Infinite Reach event. Um, Like people just came out of the woodwork because that really tells you how little was happening in the city for Métis people that was specific. So, you know, we, we, I did that for a number of years and really, I think, you know, wanted to contribute to that community development work in that way. And then joined the women, the Toronto York Region Métis Council as a women's rep. And then there was an election and I said, you know what, now is the time to run for president um, because this is, it feels like I want to expand this work in, in a bigger way. Um, not just for post-secondary students, but for the entire community. And so that, um, I served as council president for uh, close to five years. Oh, um, wow. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then and then I got pregnant with my daughter. And I, I always said, though, while I was council president, I was only going to serve a term. I wanted to serve <laughs> one term and make it, you know, have a bit of an impact and hand it over. Because I, I also am a big believer in, you know, the change of leadership, right? Yeah. Um, and allowing, especially allowing people who are interested and who want to take positions of leadership um, and who have good heart and good intentions to creating space for them to do that. So I yeah. was... I was always happy to hand it over, but nobody was willing to step forward. <laughs> and so I stuck around and then got pregnant again. And I was like, I'm out. Um, yeah. you guys, you know, somebody's got to take over here. And, yeah. and, and surely, surely Dabowski did. Um, but yeah, so I was served as council president and, and then took a break when I had my daughter. And then this most recently was, um, ran for the election for region eight women's rep, um, Gosh, over the summertime, I think, or into the yeah, fall. I don't, I I don't even so, remember yeah. when it was. I think it was the summer. So, yeah. you know, felt like, you know, felt like I've, I've, I've missed it. And I miss yeah. sort of being connected to community, especially during COVID. It became very pronounced for me during COVID, okay. the feeling of disconnection from community. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, in the work that I do as a, as a therapist, as an academic, um, it's very important for me. I actually lose a bit of credit for academics who don't have a foot within their community. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, there's something that's off there for me. If you're, you're doing this kind of academic work, but yet you're not connecting to your community in any way, you Mm -hmm. lose kind of 
the beat or the pulse of, of your community, I think, yeah. or you're distanced from it. And so yeah. I wanted to sort of step back in once my baby started walking and, you know, <laughs> had more independence and I didn't have to hold her 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to sort of reconnect in this fashion. So, so yeah, so that's what kind of that has looked like for me in terms of community engagement um, in the last several years. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that piece that you were talking about, about how, you know, if you are doing research or whatever in the community, it, it is better to be at least somewhat ingrained within your community. Uh, Mitch and I were talking about that on on a podcast episode that we recorded a little bit a while ago, but he was talking about how, you know, there's like an accountability there. Um, so, you know, the more that you're within the community, you're going to feel a little bit more accountable to make sure that they're being represented properly and treated properly in the research. So yeah, yeah I think that's great. Yeah. And it's, and you know, for me, it's, it's about, you know, the community being able, listen, I've had very tough moments in of my yeah. journey too, in learning and being, yeah. you know, being sort of called to uh, not taken to task, but how there've been moments of tension and conflict yeah. that I've experienced. Um with other community members who, you know, and, and that's always very painful, but you know, mm-hmm. there's teachings and lessons that come from everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, you take what you can from those moments and then you make peace with the rest and you keep going because there's always going to be criticism. There's always going to be people saying you could be doing a better job or you should be doing this or that, or yeah. what you're doing isn't right. Um, and again, you know, if your heart is in the right place, if you're trying um, to do a good thing, then, you know, then we should be give people grace because yes. we're all imperfect and we all are on journeys of learning. And so again, you know, just because you have a bad encounter with somebody or there's a conflict or, you know, somebody hurts you in some way, you know, don't, don't stop where you're at, you know, you know, keep, take the time you need to process and reflect that and then keep going because, yeah you know, we need everybody. We need, we need, and if people think they can do it better, well then they need to step up and do it better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yep. that's, that's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good segue, I think, um, to the next half of the interview. It's a little bit more based on kind of, um, I guess they're big questions for sure. So it's okay if you don't have, you know, a a good answer or a well-structured answer because they are, as I was reading back through them, I'm like, these are a bit overarching, but I think that um, they're conversations that I really like to have and I think are good for other people to have and listen to. Um, So uh, the first one is, why is it important to ensure that cultural distinction when you're talking about First Nation, Inuit, and Métis folk? You know, this is something that I, I, I have reflected on quite a bit because again, my, some of my academic research looks at, um, you know, how culture, um, can be, and traditional knowledge can be used in helpful ways for folks who are specifically urban Métis homeless people, mm. um, some of the benefits of, and, and some of the challenges of using kind of culture as a, as a mechanism for change or growth or healing, whatever language you want to use. Mm. And I think that, you know, there, it, it really depends for me on how you define culture because culture can be things like 
fiddle or jig or mm-hmm. beadwork. Um, but it can also, there's a real kind of fuzziness around culture and spirituality or ceremony. And some people, you know, understand culture as including ceremony and spirituality and others don't. And, and so, you know, depending and community is another example, right. Around that kind of, for me, it is around that sort of piece around both culture and spirituality or ceremony, yeah. right? Being connected in community is a can be a spiritual experience. And mm-hmm. so and so I think that there's space for both, right? I think that being distinct from First Nations and Inuit folks is important to tell the story of of what Metis people have experienced, you know, mm-hmm. in this country historically, mm-hmm. um, because our experiences have been distinct in, in many different ways. You know, the fact that this framework didn't come to be until, I don't know, yeah. like what, a few years ago, five years ago, something like that. Two years ago, I think. Oh gosh, two years. Ago. I was like, I was pregnant with one of my children. Let yeah. me go with Bo, <laughs> but maybe it was Aurora. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the fact that it's taken till 2019, let's say, for that to happen, yeah. tells you that there has been, you know, there is a deep, deep history of invisibility for us. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about that and making space for that and is important. Um, for, as a healthcare provider, you know, I, there is coverage for folks who have, again, this is not ideal because it's status specific, but First Nations folks who have status mm-hmm. um, or Inuit folks who are, you know, registered with um, like with a claim or land um, land claim. Mm-hmm. They have access to therapy through the government and Métis people don't have that. Oh, like, wow. So there's real implications there, right? Yeah. Around, around what some of um, our experiences have been in terms of like systemic racism and systemic yeah. barriers. So, you know, creating space for, to talk about that and to acknowledge that and, and to recognize the reality um, from that is important. Um, and there are, there is distinctiveness without a doubt, right? Like I said, like our music and our, yeah. our regalia or the sash that we wear and, you know, all these other things, you know, those are, those are, um, those are important things to recognize around, you know, that uniqueness of our people. Yeah. Um, for me, when it comes, when it, when we start to shift into that realm of sort of spirit or ceremony, things become a little bit more, a little bit more um, murky, I think for me, because, you know, this, there's this great divide within the Métis nation around, <laughs> you know, Catholicism or Christianity and, you know, more traditional or indigenous spiritual views. And mm-hmm. that to me is total. No- Anybody who's listening, that to me is total nonsense. I just <laughs> want to go on the record officially. <laughs> FYI, everyone catch the memo. Total nonsense to me because, you know, that, that divide is, is, you know, unless it's a personal thing, like I'm personally drawn to, drawn to Christianity, you know, great. I'm yeah. happy for you. Congratulations. That's wonderful and beautiful. Yeah. If you as a Miti person are drawn to more traditional, you know, I hate even the term indigenous spirituality. Like that's just ridiculous to me, yeah. but like more sort of, um, sorry, not indigenous spirituality, first nation, people will call it, Oh, more first nations spirituality. Yeah. It's like, guys, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. you know, these are our blood runs from, our first nation ancestors Mm -hmm. and our people, Métis people, you know, um, they also immerse themselves within those cultures and practices and traditions. And so 
for me, you know, this divide around religion and spirituality, it's really, it's really nonsensical to me. And, you know, people, whatever, I, I want to encourage young people, especially to do what feels right to you. Yes. And anybody who tells you different, anybody who tells you, oh, Métis people, we don't go to ceremony, we don't smudge, we don't play a drum, don't listen to them. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Do yeah. what feels right. And if you are, feel called to those things, mm-hmm. then you your spirit is leading you in that direction. If you feel called to Christianity, beautiful. Yeah. Go towards that direction, right? Whatever is going to be helpful and meaningful. So yeah. So yeah. So, you know, I think those are those are some areas of where in my mind distinctiveness is important but then also you know unity or kind of connect collectivity becomes important um as well yeah it's always oh sorry go ahead no go ahead I was just gonna say that is my uh there's my what's that called where you send out a message that's like a like a commercial my mind is we're at oh, five o'clock and my mind God. is starting to melt yes do you know what I'm talking yes, about yes I do and I can't think of it either. I can't think of it either <laughs> anyways but that's my personal shtick and my and my 411 on the whole Métis spirituality versus traditional first nation spirituality nonsense. yeah <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think it's always really like interesting when there is that debate or argument, whatever you want to call it between, you know, where our spiritual ties should lie. Um, Because there was a friend of mine said it, he was wasn't talking about um, indigenous spirituality, but he was talking about, you know, different religions. And he said, we're all looking at the same thing, but from different angles. And I really feel like that ties into spirituality and Catholicism. It really is, I think, synonymous because I practice, I'm what I consider myself uh, Mm non-denominational Christian. And I find that a lot of the things that I believe, um, I can find very common threads within uh, Indigenous spirituality. Mm -hmm. So I do find it interesting when there's that argument, because I'm like, guys, we're talking about the same thing. (laughs) Yes. And and for me, what becomes really, again, sort of as as a helper, right, from this mental health perspective, for me, what really kind of gets me upset is that people often when you when you become dogmatic, Mm. um, around no, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah or no, that's not how we did it, that actually harms people. I don't know if anybody realizes that when they're doing it, but you're actually harming somebody when you start talking like that because you other people, you other people. So if, if you have a different belief, great, keep it to yourself, (laughs) keep it to yourself and let young people, you let young people figure this out for themselves, right? Because you can do harm when you send messages like that and you tell people you don't belong to us unless you follow exactly what we do. That's, that's really unhelpful in many, many ways. So there we go. Public service (laughs) announcement. There it is. There you go. PSA. Yeah. (laughs) It was on the tip of my tongue. I'm like, you're going to bug me. (laughs) All right. So the next question, we've kind of been talking about it again. It's been a a thread through um, this whole conversation. But um, why is it important for Indigenous people to connect to their culture and communities? And how does this impact our mental health? 
Yeah, this is such a great question. Um, you know, I think for us as Métis people, there's there's many, many, many different benefits and ways that this becomes helpful. In my experience, you know, there's sort of key, some key themes as a mental health helper or therapist, clinician, whatever, that I continue to circle back to. And one is around sense of belonging and acceptance, right? Yeah. So a lot of people... Uh, and I think young people in particular, although I definitely have seen it across the lifespan, you know, we search for a place to belong. Mm-hmm. And when we have that, when we feel grounded somewhere or like these are my people or this is the land or this story, I see myself reflected in this story. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be very, it's very powerful to feel to feel that because it, it, we are not alone then you're not alone in, in sort of the struggle or the journey or the feeling or whatever and feeling connected with others or, and feeling accepted by others. Um, especially if we have not felt accepted in our life before, that is very healing. It is very, you know, the power of relationship and attachment and connection for us as as Métis people, as Indigenous people more broadly, is fundamental um, in in a lot of the work that I do. So that's that's sort of one piece. Mm -hmm. The other piece, you know, around culture and community and so on um, and spirituality is is the sense of purpose or direction that people can can gain from becoming connected in these ways. Right. So whether that is about, you know, Oh, I, I see there's a vacancy on my council, right? I see there's a vacancy on the youth council. Let me fill that. Let me try to, let me, let me try to contribute or help in some way. Mm -hmm. Boom. You've got, now you've got a new community of folks and you've got something to direct your energy and attention and passion and gifts towards. Because this is the other thing for me, right? Is that we all come here with gifts, whether they are, whether they are sort of like manifesting, like you can see them visible gifts, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of in whatever, painting, in, you know, as a therapist, as a, as a parent, we all have gifts. And then there's spiritual gifts that we that we carry and bring as well. And so part of our journey here is to learn what those gifts are and to develop them and nurture them and then to use them to help other people, to help people who yeah. are in need. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, becoming involved and becoming engaged in these ways, especially, you know, through more structured systems, whether that's the Métis Nation of Ontario or other more grassroots kind of um, you know, initiatives, it helps give us that purpose and direction, which again, you know, for folks that I work with who, for example, you know, contemplate, you know, their purpose on life or whether their life is worth living, or maybe they should end their life though, you know, having that sense of, of acceptance and the love that comes with that often and that sense of direction and the recognition, no, you, your, your life has value. Yeah. You have gifts. You've come here for a reason. Le- being able to sort of identify and uncover those things and experience those things transforms the state of our health and our wellness and mental health as well. So, yeah. so for me, a lot of the work that I do is about those things. Um, and, and a lot of that can be found through culture and through community. Right. Yeah. And I've even experienced that, you know, um, on on some sort of level uh as I worked through 
my undergrad because I really struggled mm-hmm. a lot with my mental health and my undergrad with, um, you know, an undiagnosed anxiety disorder that I didn't figure mm-hmm. out till a couple years ago. And it was rough. And I found that, you know, um, like being tied into the Infinite Reach Network particular like I had you know Melody (laughs) reaching out to me and just checking in and seeing how I was doing and when we would do those you know mid uh, year meetings in Toronto being able to see everybody and just check in and kind of breathe because you're Mm -hmm. with people that got it a little bit and it was a a safe space where I could talk about stuff like that without being judged Um, it really did help and it like you said gave me a sense of purpose I had school of course but then outside of school I had to put together these little um events and stuff on campus so yeah it it definitely helps me uh tie into my community so uh yeah I was just really interested to see if that was kind of kind of tried and true theory on the mental health side of things and it sounds like it is so that's oh oh gosh well listen there's I don't know I mean there's lots of research probably that would back up those assertions that's Tara's that's Tara's And that's, that's my experience as a clinician. There is, but you're right. There is lots of, there's lots of research, you know, especially by indigenous academics that look at this, right. That look at sort of, and, and view culture as a determinant of health for indigenous people. Right. So being able to be culturally connected, um, you know, is, is a deterrent being in community are determinants of health for Mm us. So you know, a 100%, um, there, you know, there is a, there's an empirical base to all of, to all of my assertions that I yeah. <laughs> ran through there. And I added my own flavor there too, with, with through my work with lots of, with, uh, with lots of Indigenous people. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. All right. So uh, the next question is, and this is one that I read and I was like, this might be a little bit too broad. So my <laughs> okay. apologies if it is. Um, <laughs> but what are some ways in which the different intersections of our identity, be it womanhood, queerness, two-spiritedness, affect our conversations around indigeneity? Yeah, that's a big one. Um so, you know, intersectionality is a really, it's a really interesting thing. And I'm going to relate it to my life, um, Hannah, because, you know, I, I carry, as we all do, many intersections, but I, I want to speak from my experience and not mm-hmm. too broadly of others. Okay. Um, but, you know, like, for example, I was always drawn to like women and gender studies and Indigenous studies mm-hmm. and women's health and Indigenous health. And, you know, I've always carried both of that and, and I've yeah. come to learn over time, right. As I've aged, as I've become old, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> not quite there yet. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I welcome it. I welcome it actually, because I've learned so much over, over the years of my life, but yeah. you know, I've come to realize that my ability to hold trauma and to listen to people's stories of trauma is a gift that I've been endowed with Mm -hmm. by creator. And, you know, the fact that I can do this work and that I can sit with people in really dark, dark, dark spaces um, of pain Mm -hmm. um, and to help them navigate that and to come out on the other side of it and, and to not be personally impacted to the point where I, where I am not, I'm not faced or I'm not debilitated by it. Yeah. That I understand is a gift. And yeah. so I work with a lot of, you know, um, with a lot of 
indigenous people, two-spirit people, um, you know, cisgendered women um, around various experiences of trauma. And, mm. and so, and so, you know, that kind of, for me, that intersectionality um, in my own life of being drawn to those areas naturally and, um, and, and then being able to sort of develop my understanding of what it means to sort of be a, a, a cisgendered woman, what it means to be an, as an Indigenous person. Yeah. Um, to what it means to be, you know, I very reluctantly and hesitantly use the word ally because I, I believe that allyship is something that is that you that you do not claim yourself that other people sort of yeah. call you to that role. Mm-hmm. You know, I sit on the uh, two spirit um, working. Uh, oh yeah, the work circle, group. Mm-hmm, yeah. as a two as in the role of ally there. So, you know, sitting in those different spaces you know, I weave them together, um, with the gifts I've been given to be able to help them in these ways. And Mm -hmm. so that intersectionality of those spaces within my own life, um, and amongst others, right. As, as a woman or sorry, as a mother, um, as somebody, you know, who, um, who has experienced my own mental health issues in life, um, et cetera, you know, all of that, all of that coalesces into sort of in, in, into what you see and, and this present moment here before you. And so, you know, I, I, I pull upon and draw all of those things together into a unified whole. And I think for us as Métis people, you know, as I'm talking about this and thinking it through with you, you know, mm-hmm. there's this really interesting, I think often from the public, this idea of like, Oh, well, we're mixed. We're half this and we're half that. Yeah. And for us, we understand nobody's going around saying we're half this and we're half that. We, as Métis people, primarily in my experience, understand ourselves as integrated and whole. Yes. And (laughs) we're not half of anything. And so, so, you know, that same concept with intersectionality, you know, we weave all of these things together into a unified whole. And I think for me, you know, that is sort of the parallel around intersectionality and my identity as a Métis person is that, it's no, it's nothing is singular here. It's it's all kind of enmeshed and entwined and woven together. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So that's sort of those are my thoughts on that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I I was thinking when I was writing this question about you know a lot of a lot of times I've heard comments about how you know why is there a need to break us apart and have all of these individual conversations when we are kind of struggling as a group or dealing with stuff as a group of metis people why fracture us into kind of you know the two spirited work, working group or the women's council or all of that and it's interesting for me that um you kind of do need to create individual spaces for people to connect with the intersection almost of the Métis identity. We have the Métis nation, but we also do need these pockets in the nation for people to gather um, with, you know, like, like issues, like intersections um, to talk about the way that that intersection impacted them and to create a safe space to talk about, you know, the issues that they might have faced even within our community and the lateral violence. So yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%, right? Because similar to like our narrative as Métis people and sort of the distinctiveness there, right? And wanting to sort of just, you know, um, be, recognize our unique differences from First Nations and Inuit. Mm-hmm. Same thing with, same concept with Two-Spirit people or with youth or with women or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we do, we also have unique experiences and diverse yeah. experiences. And so, 
you know, holding space for us to gather to talk about that aspect of ourself, right? Or our journey is something um, that, you know, is important. I will say with my work with the Women's Council um, and, and, you know, there's a number of us. um, And I think, you know, I'm going to speak boldly and say, you know, it's been my experience that most of us are, if not all of us are on the same page, right? Mm -hmm. But really creating space for that kind of intersectionality, right? So, yeah. um, you know, two-spirit, you know, our, the understanding of, two, of the, you know, women as defined by the Women's Council includes two-spirit women. And so yeah. what does it mean? Sorry, not two-spirit women, two-spirit people. people so yeah. what does it mean, you know, if we have somebody who is two-spirit um, who wants to participate in women's in women's uh, council right. events or meetings, right? Mm-hmm. And so creating space for those intersections to also in you know right. intertwine. Or black, yeah. you know, black Métis women, right? Like yeah. holding space for their experiences and, yeah. and other cultural, you know, um, folks from other cultural um, or or racial backgrounds, right? Yeah. So recognizing, listen, this is this is not one size fits all here. There's yeah. become in many different many different um iterations of 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 self yeah that's great so that brings us to the last interview question i have two little lightning round ones after this but this is the last kind of big question okay um so what advice would you give people who are questioning if they are valid enough to show up in metis spaces yeah so you know i think that there's a lot of anxiety that comes with, you know, as I've talked a little bit myself, there's a lot of anxiety that, that comes with identifying and with sort of taking the risk, um, especially if we're not feeling a hundred percent sure of ourselves and sure of our ancestry, you know, are we enough Métis? Do I know the language? Do I know the finger weaving well enough to show up to the workshop? All this stuff. And listen, we all start from somewhere. So the ones who have grown up knowing exactly who they are, from what community, with the culture, with the traditions, that's a privilege. I'm, I'm going to be as bold, very bold to assert that. That's a, that's, a, that's a privilege to be raised within your culture and within your community. Because yeah. especially for us as Métis people, as Indigenous people, that is, that is not the common narrative. And I, mm-hmm. I agree with you. I hope it begins to change and shift, but it is, it is not been, it has not been the norm. And so we all start somewhere. This journey starts for many of us at different points in our life. And, um, you know, my hope and my intention, um, for you is that, you know, you are able to find the, um, I'm going to be very careful with my language here, but, but that you find, you find a place of, of acceptance of self, um, wherever you are with your journey that allows you to take that step forward. Yeah. And hopefully you have a nice group of people that meet you. And if they're not so nice, <laughs> just leave them and find somebody else. Because yeah. again, not everybody is going, not everybody, number one is well within the community and they've got, we've all got our own stuff. Uh-huh. And so people are very is- easily triggered by other people. And so, you know, I, I, I guess that would also be a piece of advice is to recognize if somebody is not the most welcoming or most kind, that's more about them and less about you. Uh-huh. And, you know, to, to just keep going and to keep persisting um, until you find that group of people that, that are safe for you or that are grounding for you. Yeah. Um, and because, you know, you know what it feels like to not be engaged and to not be doing anything. Um, 
you know what that feels like. And if that feels dissatisfying or unfulfilling, give, give the alternative a try. Yeah. Um, and recognize this is a journey. This is not, not everybody knows everything at every moment in their life. It's, that's why we have a life. It's because it's, it's a long one. It's hopefully <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's a journey and we learn as we go. Um, and yeah. we all start somewhere. Yeah. I think that's, that's super important, especially that last piece about how, you know, just to remind yourself that not everybody has it figured out because that's how I felt. I'll tell you that right now. When I came into my first like MO gathering, I was like, I'm sticking out like a sore thumb. <laughs> I'm the only one that doesn't know what's going on. But then you start talking to people and that's not the case at all. So. I'm going to tell you a funny story since you interviewed Mitch already. I remember going to my very first infinite. This was the very first thing I ever really did with the MO. Okay. And I went to my very first. Uh, infinite reach facilitator gathering which was the very first thing for everyone mm-hmm. um and and so I walked into the Sheridan hotel I think it was early and I was you know dressed to impress I probably had like a blazer on and like you know nice shoes and everything yeah and I walked in and I was sitting there and you know I don't know if anybody's been to the Sheridan they have this like lovely kind of like um garden sort of in the middle like a there's a usually an entryway with like a little bit of a waterfall or whatever yeah yeah and so I I looked out this window there's huge windows so you can see see this little garden area Mm -hmm. and who is standing there but Mitch Case (laughs) dressed in his like sash and beadwork and like (laughs) I don't know if he was praying or what he was doing and I was like holy crap what am I doing here? I, 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 this is, I am, these are not, this is not what I expected. I am not dressed for this. I don't know what I'm doing. Like it was the most polarizing, (laughs) probably the two most polarizing images, like Mitch case in his like beautiful, stunning beadwork and like super traditional ways and all the things. And me in like my power jacket in like downtown Toronto (laughs) with my like heeled shoes. I didn't even know what a sash was probably. Yeah. It was just like, it was like the, the two ends of the spectrum and anyways, yeah. and I went and I went and I sat there and, and, you know, and, and then I saw, and then I saw people who also, I don't know if anybody looked like me, but you know, everybody across that spectrum, right. Of yeah. sort of culture and, and personhood and, 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 you know, and, and, and that's that. And so, yeah. you know, if I had, if I remained paralyzed in that fear, I would have never I don't think, but it, the journey maybe would have looked different, but it wouldn't yeah. be what it is today. Right. Yeah. And so, and so, yeah. So, you know, work through that, do some breathing yeah. and take the plunge. Yeah. No, that's great advice. All right. So that brings us to the fun part of the interview. It's all been fun, Hannah. I just <laughs> a I'm a stickler up until this point. <laughs> <laughs> so these are just supposed to be quick, like lightning round, quick, you know, elevator pitch answers kind of thing. Okay. Mitch took a little bit longer. So if you do too, that's okay. But yeah. (laughs) Um, So the first one is what does being Métis mean to you? Oh no, I'm going to, I'm going to do like Mitch too. Um, (laughs) You know, Métis to me means, to me, it's about connection to the people that I have come from, right? My ancestors Mm -hmm. And honestly, I've been looking at a lot of old photos lately and looking at photos of like 
you know, generations ago and have such deep gratitude for like my great grandparents and my great, great grandparents and my great, great, great grandparents, right? Like Mm -hmm. for what they have endured, for what they have had to live through and to persevere and survive so that I can be here today. And, And so I, I, to me that being Métis means honoring those relations and, and, and their journey. Um, it also means like for me, land and being connected to land and community, um, spirit, I would say is a really big one for me. Like my identity, the teachings that I have gotten about who I am and why I'm here and what this journey is about. Like none of that would have come if it not had been for my identity as a Métis person. Yeah. So to me, that is also a big part of being Métis and I honestly I just feel like you know relationships is another part of being of this identity for me like the relationship I have with my children and the teachings again that have come about to me about like how to raise them and the gifts they carry and my role and and walk in the world as a mother and yeah you know my parents and and so on it's and like and my like some of my best friends are the ones, the people that I go to when I'm struggling the most are the people I have met through the Métis Nation of Ontario and yeah. the community. And so yeah. that all of that, right. Is like, you know, such a, like such a beautiful, such a beautiful space and of interconnectedness. So, yeah. so all of that is what being Métis means to me. I love that. Good. <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter if you didn't. I, that's yeah. that. <laughs> But I'm glad it connected for you. Good. (laughs) All right. So the last one is, what is your favorite part about being Métis? Oh, gosh. I know this one's a hard one. My favorite, you know, I probably should, I I read through your questions, Hannah, but I don't know that they all sunk in. So my favorite (laughs) part about being Métis, oh, you know, I would say, I think again, it's like what there's many, there's many, but what's coming to me right now is just like hanging out with like community and the laughter yeah. and like, like, so Joe Paquette is somebody that I worked with like very closely. He was like an elder of mine mm-hmm. and, and just, you know, changed my life genuinely in many ways. And so like yeah. just sitting with him and talking with him and laughing with him and, and just like the love, right? Like the, the, there's such abundance of like love that comes from our people. And so for me, you know, the hilariousness and, and the laughter and the good, the good times and the bonding, that's, that's some of my, and even with my own family, like my dad's, my dad's family are so Métis. It's, it's, it's not it's not even funny but it's hilarious so yeah. <laughs> so yeah so that so that for me is some of the funnest things and flying everywhere traveling oh my, oh my god. god maybe that's one of my I mean but this is pre-covid where we get to like travel all the time and like go to like you know different communities and yeah. visit and be on airplane like when I started getting involved with the MNO being on airplanes I was like who am I like yeah, I know <laughs> I am like a celebrity <laughs> flying on this like you know Porter Airlines yeah. with the free peanuts like bear watch skin. out Bearskin <laughs> Airlines watch out I'm coming down the aisle <laughs> so that probably is also that that is a more that, that is a that brings many good memories for me the, yeah. the trips and the travels and the 
hotel shenanigans with some of my bestest, bestest of friends. Yeah, that's great. Well, that brings us to the end of the interview. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know that, again, I've caught you at the end of your workday, but I really, really appreciate you sitting down to have this conversation with me. I feel like we've covered a lot of stuff that I loved talking about at the beginning of my journey, and I'm sure a lot of people will, uh, like, hopefully, like listening to it. So (laughs) Good. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This podcast is done in partnership with the Métis Nation of Ontario's Youth Council and their Grassroots Grants Program, which is a program that funds Métis youth in Ontario to start their own community-based initiatives. If you liked this episode, please feel free to follow me on Instagram at Métis and Me with two E's, on YouTube at Métis and Me with one E, (laughs) and you can also email me at Métis and Me one E at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.